Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to the Mr. Beacon podcast. This week, we are speaking to Tom Raftery from SAP. Tom is a futurist an evangelist, a podcaster, keynote speaker. And we're talking to him about supply chains and sustainability. So uh, any of you who are thinking about business opportunities in this area, this will be a good podcast for you because we talk about uh, legislation that's driving forward this uh, area of innovation and new systems. And uh, I believe that uh, auto ID technology um, RTLS uh, supply chain tech is a key to fighting climate change. And it seems like uh, Tom, who works at SAP, agrees. He spends all day thinking and talking uh, about this and uh, tremendously interesting chap. I also uh, ask him a bit about his role as an evangelist, uh, why SAP has such people uh, but also how he's accumulated followers in his social uh, media network um, and some of the keys to doing what he does in terms of public speaking. Public speaking is probably the elemental skill that uh, can make a huge difference to our success, whether we're selling or leading with inside organizations. And uh, so I think you'll find all of that interesting and enjoyable. Have a listen. The Mr. Beacon podcast is sponsored by Williot, intelligence for everyday things, powered by IoT Pixels. So, Tom, welcome to the Mr. Beacon podcast. Thank you, Steve. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it's a real pleasure. Um, we've spoken on your podcast, and I ended that thinking that I wanted to ask you loads of questions. So you are a futurist uh, and an evangelist uh, SAP, which is like a super cool job, and we'll get a chance to talk about that later in the show. Um, but you're, you have a focus on a couple of things that are really uh, important to me personally, but I think also just relevant to the dynamics of uh, the economy, where the world is at, business opportunities, as well as uh, the survival of the race, uh, which is uh, supply chains and sustainability. And uh, uh, I guess supply chains were a bit of an abstract term. A lot of us uh, thought that it was something that other people had to deal with. And now COVID hits and suddenly supply chains don't work so well and we see the consequences. So um, it's great to be able to talk to someone that is uh, focused on there. 
what um, you know, what are your thoughts on how these two huge subjects come together, sustainability and supply chains? What are the what are the things that because uh, uh, they're not necessarily one and they're not one and the same thing, but how are they related? Yeah, so it's a good question. A huge part of any organization's emissions are related to their supply chain. It depends on the industry, depends on the organization, but it's typically anywhere from 50 to 90 to 95% of an organization's emissions can come from their supply chain. I had an episode of my Climate 21 podcast a few months back. I was talking to a guy called Ken Pucker. Ken was the COO of Timberland uh, back when they were starting out on their sustainability journey. And he said, amongst other things, it was an excellent episode, but he said on that particular episode, he said that when they started out reporting their emissions, they could only report their scope one and scope two emissions. They couldn't report their scope three emissions, which is essentially their supply chain, because they couldn't get access to that data. So it, in, in effect, they were only, and these were his words, they were only reporting 5% of their actual emissions, their own emissions, because they couldn't get their scope three. So their scope three emissions, their supply chain emissions made up 95% of their emissions. So this is why supply chain and sustainability are so closely related. And that's when I take a very narrow view of sustainability, because uh, sustainability is an extremely broad term. It's now the, 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 the acronym that they use now to refer to sustainability in a business context is usually ESG, which is Environment, Social and Governance. And that encompasses all kinds of things, everything from is there child labor or slavery in your supply chain? Do you have gender equality? Uh, have you got diversity and inclusion? All these kind of other aspects apart from climate. And I tend to, while I, while I think all of those are incredibly important, I focus on climate when I talk about sustainability. And the reason I focus on climate is because if we do not figure out or sort out gender equality in the next hundred years, we will still continue to exist. Mankind will continue. The planet will be fine. But if we don't sort out climate in the next 100 years, it's game over. This is an existential threat. So this is why I focus on climate. I don't ignore the others. I talk about them as well. And I, if you see my Twitter handle, I say I'm an ally there. You know, so I do. I, I think that all these things are important to tweet about these things as well. But when I'm talking at events or when I'm talking about sustainability, I tend to focus on the climate aspect because for me, it is by far and away the highest priority. And so... Uh, this is why I focus on emissions, and this is why when I'm talking about sustainability, I focus on that. So I, I want to just double-click and really paint the picture of this the difference between these scope one and two and scope three emissions. And, you know, my understanding is you know, scope one, it's your, how much electricity you're using and uh, um, the, 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 the uh, primary stuff that you're impacting that you own. But the reality is, our, no one makes anything anymore. We're a fabulous semiconductor company at Williots, as is Apple, as is Qualcomm. So, you know, the, the, the thing that's really creating the carbon footprint is the factories that are making the, 
the chips and then the moving it around. That's that's so I, I kind of understand it for for the chip world because I work for a company that designs and makes chips. But what does that look like for um, you know the rest of the world? What what are some of the challenges in quantif you know what is what are those scope three emissions? Just go a little bit deeper on what they are and and how do you go about quantifying them? Yeah, it, it's a good question. Uh, scope three is generally um, either the the emissions associated with your supply chain or the emissions associated with your products as they're used in the field, and they are notoriously difficult to quantify. They're extremely difficult to quantify, and even the methodologies and the metrics that are used to quantify them are still very nascent. That's going to change. That's going to change enormously in the next two, three years. And the reasons why our standards are being worked out right now on how to do this. And it's after getting a kickstart because the SEC, the American Securities and Exchange Commission, issued proposals in June of this year saying that all large publicly listed companies in the US from 2023 onwards will have to report their scope one and scope two emissions. And from 2024 onwards, we'll have to report out to scope three emissions. And then, so that's 2023 for scope one and two for all large companies. But then on top of that, they said that for all companies, so not just the large ones, all companies from 2024 will have to report their scope one and two, and all companies from 2025 will have to report out to scope three. So there will be a regulatory requirement. And even more interestingly, the SEC said these reports will have to be auditable. So suddenly, if you think of, you know, ESG, or as it used to be known, CSR, the CSR function in many companies in the last 10 years or you know, 15 years for the more progressive companies, very often the CSR function reported into the CMO, the chief marketing officer. And that tells its own story. That tells you why the company was involved or why they were interested in CSR. Now, though, because this requirement for sustainability ESG reporting is going to have to be audited. The functionality is going to shift away from the chief marketing officer into the office of the chief finance officer. And mm. suddenly the reporting will be far, far more rigorous. And it will, because it has to be audited, there will be a lot more standardization within the reporting. So cross comparability will be a thing, which has been really difficult to date. It will also... One of the issues with ESG today is because it is so immature and because there aren't that many standards, there's a lot of potential for greenwashing. But that starts to go away as there are more rules and regulations brought into the system. So will it be perfect? No. I mean, we had the whole thing with Sarbanes-Oxley in the, the finance industry. You know, there will be things like that that will come up as well in ESG reporting, but it will only get better over time, the same way financial reporting over the last 
let's see, financial reporting started in the 1920s, 1920s, 1930s. So, you know, that's been going 100 years now and it has gotten tighter and tighter and tighter over those decades. The same will happen with the ESG, hopefully over a shorter time frame. What, what does this mean for SAP? Um, we, because we run a lot of the back-end systems and a lot of the business processes for a lot of organizations, it means we are in a unique place to actually calculate uh, a lot of these emissions reports for organizations. So we're building into the into our back-end systems, we're building in that functionality to capture, to measure, and report the footprint of, of, of anything, really, that for people using our software. So we're building this footprint software into, the, like I say, into S4, into our back-end database. So people can very, very quickly and very, very easily roll out the footprint of any of their products down to an individual product level or by SKU or by region or whatever it is, whatever way they want to do it or whatever way the regulations require them to do it. So we're working closely with the standards organizations as well to make sure that what we, well, we're, we're working with them. It's, it's a cooperative thing. So we're advising them in one respect and on the others, we're taking on board the output and building that into our software so that when those regulations come in place, we'd have the software ready to support our, our customers in meeting those regulations. I mean, it's a huge opportunity, isn't it? Because the, the scope three is where most of the emissions are. And essentially your ERP system, your supply chain management system is the thing that's counting the stuff that you're buying and the stuff that you're selling. Uh, and so that's kind of, and as you say, the responsibility is moving from marketing to the CFO, which means there'll be a lot more money spent on this. You know, the marketing guy has to plead with the CFO and make the case. And the CFO is like, we need to do this. And he's, yeah. he's, he's really actually the one that writes the checks. It, it's a cost of doing business. I mean, yes, you don't report these, you're out of business. That's it. Game over. So this is actually, you know, just the price you have to pay in order to conduct your business. So... Who is doing a good job at this? You, you you interview a lot of people, and where 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 can we get the inspiration from? To uh, as to, I'll be um, very self serving first of all, and I'll say you can you can find a lot of this at my Climate Twenty One podcast. Go to any podcast app and search for Climate Twenty One, and you'll see all the people I've interviewed, and you'll find out who's doing a good job. Uh, having having gotten the shameless plug out of the way. <laughs> There are some amazing stories out there. One of the things I do on that podcast is I focus on who's doing a good job and I have them tell their story. So, mm -hmm. uh, for example, I've had the director of energy for Google on the podcast. I've had the chief environmental officer from Microsoft on the podcast, and they're doing spectacular stuff. I'm hoping to talk to the people from Stripe because they're doing an amazing job as well. Um, I've... I've um, I'm talking to people who are in the storage space, the, the energy storage space, for example, because that's a, that's a real growing industry. I've talked to people who are in the automotive space for the likes of the electrification of automotive, because that's a big thing as well, reducing the emissions of automotive. Uh, I've talked to uh, the chief environmental officers and chief sustainability officers of the likes of BCG, Deloitte, Accenture, uh, Capgemini, and so on, because they work with our mutual customers 
uh, to help them get their emissions down and get to the likes of, you know, roll out their net zero strategies and projects as well. So uh, it, it the list of who's doing what is is almost too long. If I were to call one out, uh, apart from SAP, <laughs> more shameless plugs, if I were to call out one organization, it would have to be Microsoft because they have gone above and beyond in every respect. They instituted, for example, an internal carbon tax in 2014. So they put up an internal price on every single project in the company, an internal carbon price on every single project in the company starting in 2014. So if you wanted to do anything, if you wanted to run a conference, if you wanted to go on a plane to go somewhere, if you wanted to uh, get furniture for a new office, in, included in the costing of that was the carbon implication of it and the price for that carbon. And the money that was that, that carbon cost went to the sustainability office in Microsoft and allowed them to do things like put car chargers in the car parks or invest in renewable energy or any of another trillion different uh, projects that they now had a budget for, for example. So it was a ring fence. It was ring fence money to be used solely for sustainability projects. Not alone that, but they last year uh, said they announced that uh, they were going not just to go to net zero, but they were going to go carbon negative. They were going to go carbon negative by 2030. And by 2050, if I remember correctly, they're going to have taken back out of the atmosphere every ton of CO2 that their business has emitted since they started business in 1975. And now that's an amazing goal to aim for. But not only that, they then said, we are going to put a billion euro or dollars, probably a billion dollars into a fund to fund companies to come up with ways to get carbon out of the atmosphere. Because their aim is to get all the carbon that they got out of the atmosphere or put into the atmosphere back out of the atmosphere. But there's no, there's very few ways to do that. So they, they're, they're kind of kickstarting the industry, the carbon sequestration industry. They're kickstarting it by putting a billion dollars in this fund to fund projects that will do that. And not only that, they put out an RFQ or an RFP of a million tons of CO2. So, you know, they say, here, here you go, guys, have at it. We will pay you if you can get a million tons of CO2 out of the atmosphere. So, this is really inspiring. And yeah. it, it touches on an idea that has been interesting me recently, which is this idea of operationalizing the measurement and reduction of the carbon footprint. I think, you know, this SEC regulation, uh, I fear, is going to drive static compliance. Uh, so, you know, the CFO is in charge. He's used to um, closing the books at the end of the year and going in front of the auditors and bang, uh, here's where we're at. Um, uh, and that that's a huge step forward. So it's a massive step forward. But, you know, my personal belief is that if we're going to make progress, it can't be the job of the ESG function to do this. It has to be 
you have to run the company with that, the kind of mission that you described. And the fact that Microsoft are costing individual projects, that seems like it's the way to go because then you basically make every manager accountable for it. And they're looking for, it's like, man, I'm running this conference and there's a huge carbon footprint because we're doing it in, um, I don't know, Chile. Uh, maybe maybe we need to do three conferences and so there's less travel, da, 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 da. you know. Um, so rather than, oh, at the end of the year, we give you the bad news, it's, it's like harnessing the creativity. So real-time, delegated measurement that how holds every function in the company accountable. And I actually think these companies will be more successful commercially, A, because you know they'll have amazing PR and they'll have a workforce that is, uh, is motivated and feels like they're actually working somewhere that makes a difference. But also, you know, carbon is a proxy for cost. Yep. It's, it's like, if I can have a smaller truck driving shorter distances with less in it with only the just just the right amount of inventory to do the replenishment i've massively cut my carbon footprint but also as the cfo i'm really happy because the capital employed in uh, in in inventory has gone way way down and my expenses have gone down and all of that sort of thing sure, so i you, think you got to think as well that evs cost a half to a third to fuel versus their internal combustion engine equivalents, plus they cost less than 50% in maintenance. So the, the cost of operating an EV is, I won't say orders of magnitude less, but it's significantly less than an internal combustion engine vehicle in, like I said, fueling and maintenance, which are the two big costs for any fleet manager. So we're going to see fleets flip to EVs very, very quickly. I, I believe that, yeah. The, the I was driving along the fifteen uh, um, uh, I fifteen from San Diego to San Francisco, and uh, this is like a straight road, and it's filled with these massive. Uh, I would say a, a lorry because I grew up in England, but the, the trucks, uh, and there's, you know, it's clear that these things are going to be automated really, really soon because you, you know, the, the use case is relatively simple. Yep. Um, what are you, where do you think the big opportunities are for, so we're a podcast for entrepreneurs and solution designers, innovators, um, where should they, the, the, we've got a big regulatory driver, every Every uh, businessman loves the compelling event. Uh, this is like Y2K, isn't it? We've got a deadline. What, where do you think the opportunities are for, for entrepreneurs, whether they're an entrepreneur in a Fortune 500 company or someone that's got fed up with working in a Fortune 500 company and wants to start their own company? There are a number of places. Uh, so first, we need to decarbonize everything. And second, we need to get all the carbon that's in the atmosphere back out again. So if we think a, in pre-industrial times, the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere was roughly 280 parts per million CO2, and that was stable for millennia. We come along, start pumping CO2 in the atmosphere. We get it from 280 parts per million up to where it is now, which is over 420, and it's continuing to rise. 
So we need to get it back down to 280. And that is an enormous problem because just to try and make it concrete, to give you an idea, we need to get out of the atmosphere tens of billions of tons of CO2 every year. Every year. Now, we don't know how to get a million tons of CO2 out of the atmosphere. It's never been done. And that's that's why Microsoft put that RFQ out there for a million tons of CO2. It's never been done. We have to get tens of billions out of the atmosphere every year. So that right there is a huge opportunity. The other one, as I said, is decarbonization. We need to decarbonize everything. And we need systems for measuring, reporting, uh creating the um, science-based targets. That's going to be hugely important. That's a term you'll hear more and more, science-based targets. So every organization is going to be required in the coming years to create uh, science-based targets to measure and report against them at least annually. And I think it'll come down to more often than that in a very short amount of time. Now, one of the big deadlines we hear a lot about is 2030. And that's only seven and a half, it's not even seven and a half years away. It's seven years and three months. So in seven years, a little over seven years time, in the EU, where I'm based, we have set uh, a target of reducing our emissions 55% by 2030. Now, that is enormously ambitious. The the scale of the changes that would be required to meet that are beyond most people's comprehension. To give you an example, during COVID, we reduced our emissions in 2020, 7%. They went back up 5% in 2021. So between 2020 and 2021, we've had a net reduction of 2%. Now, this 55% I mentioned, it's against our 1990 baseline. And in the last couple of decades, we've actually managed to get down 24%. But that still leaves 31% we've got to get out of the system in the next seven years. We got a 2% out in 2020 and 2021. 31% in the next seven years. It's going to require massive, massive systemic change. And this isn't a target. This is legally binding. Because yeah. the, the commission passed a regulation in June of 2021 saying that it was legally binding on all 27 nations of the EU. It doesn't just affect the EU because the EU is putting a, a carbon border tax. The, 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 the name they call it is an adjustment mechanism. It's a carbon border tax, which means anything coming into the EU from outside the EU, if it comes from a high carbon source, it'll be taxed on the way in to achieve parity so that, you know, it will be more expensive or equivalent price as the same good produced within the EU. So it will affect people outside the EU as well. Uh, it's not just the EU. China have slightly different but similar aspirations for 2030. The US is heading that direction as well. So those are the three largest economic blocks. Now, I mentioned 55% by 2030. That 55% is going to be the low-hanging fruit. And we've got to get to zero by 2050. That means that other 45%, 
are, we're going to have to get out in the 2030s and the 2040s. And it's going to be much, much harder to get that out than the initial 55%. So this is not an issue that's going away anytime soon. This is something we're going to be working really, really hard on for the next at least 27 years and probably well beyond. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, what I see is a huge opportunity for um, uh, in digital physical convergence, um, which is very abstract, but at a basic level, I think we need to get a much better handle on inventory, supply chain and assets. And so I think, you know, going down to serialization. So uh, rather than looking monolithically at, uh, um, you know, chunks of, uh, of product, every single item that's manufactured needs to have a digital identity so that we can optimize it. And um, that will be important because this all needs to not only are the regulators going to want to see it, but, you know, all our stores are starting to move to uh, electronic shelf labels. So I think we can expect to see the carbon footprint uh, appear there. How do you know that, what that carbon footprint is? And, and um, so that means instrumenting the supply chain um, and understanding, you know, we need to get there's still huge inefficiencies which can be reduced. So at the moment, you know, I happen to know there are mass, there's a backlog of um, containers uh, that are all refrigerated that are sitting behind many of the big box retailers that are just running along because that supply chain kind of basically had a hiccup. Those are all that, that they have to be chilled. Otherwise what's in them goes bad. But um, you know, that, the carbon footprint for those products versus the products that are flowing through efficiently yeah. is different. Uh, and if I'm a CFO and I'm worrying about compliance, I, I, wanna want, I want an update every month on how we're doing every week. I want a, a dashboard. So that how do I get that dashboard? That's an IT system that needs to be joined up. So systems integrators, they'll be joining warehouse management, uh, manufacturing systems, inventory systems, supply chain systems. It's a huge, it's like a, a it's a moonshot. And again, I really think- Again, shameless plug, yeah, SAP, makes, SAP makes all of those types of systems. So that if, if, if you were to have uh, those, all of those systems coming from SAP, the, the job of the systems integrator might be that little bit easier. <laughs> indeed, indeed, and it, but it needs to be customized. So I think those SI, SIs, but I think, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, learning to figuring out how do I do those uh, things. So uh, yeah. I, I really feel like we're going to see two sets of companies. There's the ones that kick it down the, the can down the road and suddenly realize that they can't do it. And others that um, actually lean into it, see it as an opportunity, build the systems uh, and, and look and measure it um, uh, quarterly, monthly, uh, weekly. Uh, and and have the IT to help them deliver it, and then they will find that they're reducing their costs and uh, engaging employees and engaging customers. Um, and so it's interesting times. So, Tom, you have a really interesting job that I think is probably the envy of many people. Um, can you talk a bit about what you do and the, the group that you do it in at SAP? Sure, yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Steve. So, yeah, 
My name, Tom Raftery. My job title is Global VP, Futurist and Innovation Evangelist. And it's a, it's, it's a cool sounding title, I got to say, um, uh, although that may be patting myself on the back a bit because I made it up. <laughs> I've got my manager to agree to it and there we go. <laughs> but um, what do I actually do? What does that mean? Well, I, I do lots of things as we all do in our, in our jobs day to day. Um, I do a lot of keynotes. So prior to COVID, for example, 2019, I did 40 something keynotes in 38 countries. Crazy amount of travel. There was one week in November 2019 where I was in four countries, three continents in one week and just mad, absolutely mad stuff. And obviously COVID came and a lot of those keynotes went virtual online, doing them to the keyboard rather than to an audience. And uh, so that that's one aspect of what I do. I do, I do a lot of talks, a lot of keynotes on kind of the two main topics that interest me. And those are uh, sustainability and technology. And what I like to talk a lot about is where they intersect. So that that's one of the things I do. I, I also do a lot of communications. Uh, I run two podcasts. I run a podcast called the Climate 21 podcast, which I publish a new episode of every Wednesday. Uh, it goes out at 6 a.m. CEST every Wednesday. And this week's episode, so we are now on the 1st of September. So the episode that went out on the 31st of August, Wednesday, the 31st of August, was episode number 85. So it's been going a while. We've published 80, 85 episodes. And the other podcast I publish is called the Digital Supply Chain Podcast. And that's one that uh, you were good enough to guest on recently, Steve. And that podcast goes out twice a week. It goes out every Monday and Friday. So it kind of bookends the week. And it's a typically roughly 30-minute podcast, uh, unscripted, where we talk about the uh, best practices and thought leadership in the supply chain space. And that's, so, been, that's been going a little longer Tomorrow's episode, uh, episode, sorry, tomorrow, 2nd of September, that episode will be episode number 250. So been going a little longer, a lot more episodes out there. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So congratulations on uh, earning your way into what seems like a, you know, a dream job. Um, uh, a few things occur to me that I'd like to talk about. Uh, uh, one is um, 
you know, uh, the, 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 the reason why SAP is investing in this. And I think there's some really good reasons, but, uh, you know, this is not something that is, uh, I mean, uh, it, it, it costs money to do what you're doing. Um, and I'd like to talk a bit about that. I'd also like to talk a bit about your tips for doing a good keynote because, you know, this podcast is all about equipping entrepreneurs who are working in this weird area of digital physical convergence to success. We talk a lot about technologies and use cases, but we also try and equip people with, um, you know, things that are useful just to be successful. And I think giving a good presentation is like, this is a lifelong thing, but you look at how important it is. And I'm, I'm just listening to the biography of Julius Caesar about to go on my holiday to Italy. So I'm like revisiting this and, you know, Julius Caesar got to be Julius Caesar partly because of his oratorical skills. Um, right. So, so let's, let's, what, and and it's you know we all know how terrifying the prospect of public speaking can be for some people it's completely debilitating they'd la rather go into uh, the um, uh, gladiatorial coliseum <laughs> than give a speech but you choose to do it and that tells me that you've figured out a few things how how do you give a good keynote what uh, what what are the things that allows you to leave the stage feeling job well done. Yeah, that's a, there's no short or easy answer to that, to be honest. Um, the first thing I would say is practice. And what I mean by that is not practice in front of the mirror for an hour or two hours or three hours before you give the talk. That's not the kind of practice I mean. I actually mean the practice of getting up and giving keynotes or getting up and giving talks because it's only by doing it two or three or four or five times that you'll start to realize that it isn't actually as bad as you might have feared. So that's that's number one. And of course, it's not just that. In SAP, I work for SAP, as you mentioned, and in SAP, we have um, slide decks that are prepared for us that we can take their templates and we can take and we can use them and that's great they have lovely graphics they have lots of information loads of notes in them there's a whole organization that prepares them i never use them i never ever use them because i didn't create the content myself i find it i i, I couldn't deliver someone else's content and i think that's crucial I think if you're giving a talk, it has to be a talk that you have developed yourself, that you've gone out and you've found the content yourself and you've put the slides together yourself. And it's when you're giving a talk that you have created, you've put the slides together, you've put in the research, then you know that content backwards. And that is a big step towards giving you the confidence it takes to step up in front of an audience, I think. And I think you've, you've put, you put your finger on something which, you know, people want authenticity. I mean, they want lots of things, but one of the, you know, that's certainly for me, you can put up with a lot if you feel like there's a real human being and one of the biggest turnoffs and, and whether you're phoning up, uh, speaking to someone at the phone company or whatever, if you get someone who's basically a robot, it makes me angry. 
Um, <laughs> but it, but if I have a conversation, even if I'm not getting what I want, but someone is listening and is authentic, then you'll put up with a lot of bad stuff. You whether it's waiting for your bagel in the morning, or if you get a personal greeting and there's a human being there, mm. then that's what we need, isn't it? And that's what is scarce. Yeah, yeah, I think as long as you feel that the person who's doing it isn't just dialing it in. As long as you feel that they've actually put in the effort and you, and that the content is interesting, because obviously if I'm giving this presentation and it's all my own stuff uh, that I've researched myself and I put the slides together myself, but if I'm at an IT conference and I'm talking about the advantages of different types of cross stitch and crocheting, I will lose the audience in ten seconds. You know, so it has to be relevant and it has to be interesting as well. Now, part of it being interesting is also in the delivery. And I mean, you mentioned some people get paralyzed and, you know, some of that is just innate. Some people are born speakers. Other people have to work really hard at it. And some people just won't ever do it because they can't or don't want to. So it's not it's not for everyone. I mean, I do a lot of social media, for example. I don't know. I haven't looked at the numbers recently, but I've been on Twitter since early 2008. I've got like 27,000 followers. I've tweeted 90 something thousand times, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. I have, I don't know, 14,000 followers or something like that. Just ridiculous numbers. And, you know, I know lots of people who would say that tweeting once a month means they're active on social media. You know, so it, 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 a lot of it is personality as well. The, the other thing I would say about giving a, a talk is your slides are really important. And it's really important to have as little text on them as possible. And there, there's two main reasons why you shouldn't have a lot of text on your slides. The first is your audience is going to, if there's text on your slides, the first thing the audience is going to do is they're going to start reading that and suddenly they're not listening to you because very few people can do that kind of multitasking where you can read and listen at the same time. So you lose your audience if you have a lot of text on the slide. And the second is a lot of people put text on their slides as a crutch because they don't know the content they're talking about. So they put the text up there and they read it out. You should have as little text on your slides as possible. And if you do have text, don't be talking about that. Use it there as, use, use it as a, a theme, but not what you're actually talking about. So as little text as possible. Pictures are great. I sometimes, well, a lot of my slides are uh, screenshots of newspaper articles, for example, uh, with as little text as possible, maybe the headline and, and the picture from the newspaper article. And so what I'm what I'm talking about is I'm talking about this news, this story happened and this story happened and this story happened. So this tells us there's a trend going in this direction. A lot of people will tell you as a presenter as well that you should have one slide for every three minutes. Rubbish. You should have as many slides per minute as you want, however you're comfortable with. My personal... Um, Speed is typically around three slides per minute, although I gave a talk in Porto in June of this year where I went through 94 slides in, 
don't know, was it 15 or 20 minutes? I think it was 20 minutes. So, you know, that's a little over four slides per minute. So it's, it's whatever you're comfortable with. And, you know, I told people who were in the audience afterwards that it had been 94 slides and they didn't believe me until I showed them the deck because you just, you just click, 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 click. And the audience, yeah. just, it's, you know, they're, they're getting a movie and it's, well, it's, it's one that I, I, isn't distracting either because it's just talking to the narrative you're speaking to. And and sorry to thing. interrupt your flow, but uh, so I think the key thing, though, is go back to the previous rule, which is if you've got like 30 bullet points on the slide, then and you're storming through, then people are going to be like, well, well, what about that? And that, what about that? But if you've got if you're if it's basically a backdrop, uh, provoking images, simple ideas, then you can get through them a lot faster. Can't you? It's kind of word count. Exactly. And the other thing I would say, I know I'm saying a lot of, and the other thing I would say, but <laughs> I'll let this be the last. And the other thing I would say about giving a talk is don't learn it off. I never know what I'm going to say. I don't, I haven't, I haven't written it out. I know the message I want to get across. I have the slides in the right order. So I have an idea of what I'm going to say, but the actual words I'm going to use, I have no idea what those are going to be until I'm standing up actually spouting them so it's don't don't write it out don't script it don't learn it off because that's that becomes too staid you, you, you're more likely to be monotonous and also if you forget a line or a word you know you're far more likely to be nervous because you have to learn it off and you have to give it word for word no you don't don't do that because you will be more nervous and you're more likely to make a mistake and trip yourself up and make yourself even more nervous because you've realized you've just tripped yourself up and gotten the script wrong. Don't. Just speak from the heart. Well, I think one of the other rules is you need to be born in Ireland and grow up there. That's one of the other important <laughs> things you need to make sure of. Like, it's like, and, and I, obviously I'm joking, but um, it does help. And, uh, <laughs> but I think it's a means to voice inflection. And, you know, I listen to you and it's, it's, you know, you have that, I don't want to smother you with flattery, but it's, uh, <laughs> you've got an amazing voice and it, 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 it rises, it falls. It's uh, me. I, I have like the British monotone, so I have to really work at, um, it may uh, be as well. Uh, I've, I've this cool soundboard on the desk here beside me, which uh, makes my voice sound really good. <laughs> I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's the technology. Um, and, and lastly, um, how do you make it interesting? What's, what's, what's sounds think, obvious, but yeah, that, that's, that's more intangible. And I think you make it interesting by obviously it being something topical or, or relevant to your audience, back to that crochet example I used a second ago, but also you make it interesting by it being something that you are interested in yourself. Because if it's a topic you're interested in and you're excited about and you're passionate about, that interest and that excitement and that passion will transmit to your audience as you're delivering it. And that will make them interested and excited and hopefully passionate about it as well. But if you're not interested in it, there's no way you can make it interesting for your audience. 
And the other thing, I mean, even as you were explaining what you were explaining, you were telling stories. I was at this uh, presentation in Porto. It's like, oh, okay, that's uh, suddenly it goes from the abstract to being very specific. I'm starting to think about the meal that you might have had after the really good presentation. <laughs> oh, and, the meals uh, were amazing at that event. Oh, my gosh. Oh. <laughs> excellent. Fantastic seafood, the whole thing. Well, that was helpful. Um, Let's go back to the other part of it, which is SAP, one of the most successful software companies in the world, just kind of helped to, is the cornerstone of this amazing industry. Um, they're not throwing their money around willy-nilly. Why are they investing in, in what you do? And it's not just you that's doing it, is it? There's other people that are uh, doing similar things. Us, yeah. yeah, I'm part of a team called the Thought Leadership and Awareness uh, Organization. So we are we are tasked with creating thought leadership content be it in the form of blogs or videos or podcasts forbes articles all that kind of stuff so there's a group of us there creating all this content and it's all thought leadership best practices that kind of stuff and then there's the awareness side so Thought leadership and awareness is our team. The awareness is then we make people aware of this content because obviously uh, just creating the content and leaving it sit there is a waste of time. So we develop the content and then we make people aware of it. And I mentioned that I have, you know, a lot of followers on Twitter, a lot of followers on LinkedIn, a reasonable number of followers on Instagram. I don't use it as often. So part of my role as well is to use social media to raise awareness for this content. And so it's, it's the two sides. Uh, we do both. We develop the content and then we make people aware of it. And, you know, most of the content that we create, it's not directly related to SAP, but, you know, if there are themes or if there are links back to an SAP uh, product page or something like that that's relevant, then it, it is added into the article if it's an article, that kind of thing. It's not always the case. Uh, a lot of the podcasts that I've done, uh, they they talk about specific themes, uh, different subjects, IoT, on your case, for example. If someone then is writing an SAP-related article, they might take a quote from the podcast and link to the podcast and have that in their article. So the, we, we use the, the articles and the podcasts, they, they link to each other. And so, you know, we're kind of cross-pollinating that way as well. But so I, I see what, how uh, you can be producing things that are relevant to SAP that, that other parts of the organization can use. You've got a lot of followers. So potentially you're bringing eyeballs to SAP. It, uh, I'm just sort of thinking what you do probably didn't exist 10, certainly not 20 years ago. What is it that happened that means that content is worth investing in? Because normally what you would do would be, you know, in the old days, you'd be working at Forbes, not, mm. a, not at SAP. So what, I, what I, happened? I would contest that. Uh, maybe it didn't exist as much as it is now. But for example, um, when I was in university, uh, I, I worked a couple of summers in the UK 
And at the end of those two summers, I applied to the uh, revenue commissioners in the UK for my tax back. And I got the tax back and it was a nice big check. It was lovely. And at the same time, the head of department in the course I was doing told us that we had to hand in our third and fourth year project on a disc. I was studying biology at the time. There was two computers in the department. They were Amstrad 1512s, which had two floppy drives and no hard drives. So you needed three five and a quarter inch floppy drives to operate these things. And because there was only two of them, there was a queue for them. So I had this big check and I had this requirement. And I said, why don't I buy my own computer? So I bought a computer. I knew nothing about computers because I was a biologist. So I read around and I read an, an article in Time magazine saying that the Macintosh is supposed to be a really user-friendly, was a nice term they used, user-friendly computer. So I thought, cool, let's get me a Macintosh. So I bought a Macintosh and I bought a, uh, a Mac Bible, I think was the name of the book. And I read it cover to cover. So I taught mm -hmm. myself how to use the Mac and that was great. And then I started subscribing to a Mac user magazine. And on the last page of the Mac user magazine was a weekly or monthly, I can't remember if the article was published weekly or monthly, but there was an article by a chap called Guy Kawasaki. And mm. his title was Mac Evangelist. So mm. his job working for Apple at the time, his job was to be an evangelist for Apple, create content to your point for Apple around Macs, generate interest around the, the Macintosh computer, and, you know, his articles were always great. They were, they, was, they were on the back page, but they were almost always the first thing I would flip to. And mm. he's still going strong. He's not with Apple anymore, uh, but he's still going strong. You'll find him on TED Talks. You'll find him on YouTube. You'll find him on events, giving talks, that kind of thing. Really, really cool presenter. Really, really interesting guy. But, you know, so the role of the evangelist going out, evangelizing, generating content, generating interest for companies has been around a long time. I mean, we're talking the early 90s at this point. Great. I love your rebuttal. I love it when people disagree <laughs> on these podcasts and uh, interviews. It's uh, so often we spend our time agreeing and it just is uh, conflict is much better. Not that that was particularly heated, but because I, <laughs> I take your point. Uh, I've readjusted my frame of reference. I, but uh, my rebuttal to you is, um, you know, Google uh, search engine analytics means that we get rewarded for providing information and content. And uh, you can no longer just put ads up and drive, I mean, you can put ads up, um, but you, you, you know, the best quality traffic is organic traffic in my mind. And so you've got to be educating people. And I, it builds trust and uh, I, I, I've, so anyway, so I believe in, I believe in what you're doing. Um, you're right. And, and to that, that end, uh, for reasons of, search engine optimization, but also for reasons of accessibility, I have a full transcription that I publish with every publish, with, sorry, with every podcast that I publish. So yes, like I say, it works great for search engine optimization, but it also makes the podcasts far more accessible. We do, we do that as well. And you're breaking our uh, algorithm because we haven't mentioned the word uh, Bluetooth tag once in this, in this conversation, but it's interesting. So who cares? Uh, last thing, before we get on to your music choices, how do you get so many social media followers? I mean, you, you publish regularly. I heard that, but it's, yeah. uh, you know, it's more than that. It is. Yeah. Uh, that's a big part of it. 
Um, there's a couple of ways to do it. First of all, like I said, I've been on Twitter since 2008. I think it was February 2008. I can't remember exactly, but it was around that time frame anyway. So very early to Twitter uh, and very early to LinkedIn as well. And uh, I, I, I engage, I publish, and that's a huge part of it. Um, there are other things as well. It's not just publishing, but you have to be publishing interesting content. So, you know, for example, a lot of my tweets happen early in the morning before I start proper work, shall we say. And that is me scrolling through the news and re reading something about, I don't know, some drought that's just broken out or something going, oh, that's terrible. And then I just hit the share button and send it to Twitter or send it to LinkedIn with a quick comment, boom, published, bang. So, you know, if if it's an interesting news, topical news item, for example, so people who follow me are getting, you know, they don't have to go and read the news or, you know, if it was if it was something that might be might be buried on, you know, if it's if it's climate related, for example, those things are not always on the front page, so they might have missed it. Or if it's tech related, same story. So, you know, I, I publish a lot of news articles. Uh, I publish, you know, memes, viral stuff from time to time as well. And I publish, you know, stuff around supply chain, stuff around climate, stuff around SAP. So it's a healthy mix in there. Uh, if I was just posting SAP, 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 no, I would have zero followers. Everyone would unfollow me in a heartbeat. You know, So my ratio of non-SAP posts to SAP posts is probably, you know, 90 to 95% non-SAP to 5 to 10% SAP related. And that way, uh, I'm not drowning people with the SAP message, and I'm giving them what I th hope is interesting content, and the occasional link to an SAP related thing so that, you know, and that way they know, oh, yeah, Tom works for SAP, and I'm building up trust. Uh, you know, anything Tom posts is usually it, it's verifiable. It links to maybe a BBC article or something like that, you know, some trustworthy uh, organization that has published it. So you, you build up trust. You're seen to be honest. You're seen to be genuine. Uh, and, you know, you work for SAP. So, you know, that and that's kind of almost a tagline. You know, this is, this is Tom. Oh, and by the way, he works for SAP. And so SAP must be, you know, decent. They, are, they, they employ someone like Tom. And is there like a persona or a, that you're, or set of personas that you're targeting? That sounds very um, uh, antiseptic, but do you have a set of people that you are have in your mind that you're talking to? I don't imagine you're posting for the interests of uh, uh, teenage girls. It's, uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, my, my uh, neighbor <laughs> is a teenage girl and she's got like, hundred thousand followers i don't know how she does it um but uh, uh yeah. i, I no, you know I, completely I, different world I, I i strongly suspect the teenage girl demographic are not not following me <laughs> <laughs> not unless they want to learn about uh you know any of the stuff that i publish which is rarely related to anything that i think i, I think the venn diagram of of teenage girl <laughs> interests and what i publish would have a very small uh, crossing over maybe something about climate i do publish about climate reasonably yeah. often uh, and about the war in Ukraine from time to time as well. Uh, you know, the topical stuff like that. Uh, but also tech stuff, a lot of tech stuff there as well. Um, some programming related stuff. 
and uh, supply chain related stuff because that's the organization in SAP that I am part of. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's it's a weird, eclectic mix, I think, at t- times. Animal pictures from time to time, you know, as well. I wonder how much of your following is aspirational. You've kind of, so let me draw the comparison again, although it may feel uncomfortable between my uh, teenage girl neighbor and you. I think she's like beautiful young lady uh, and she does a lot of fun things. And I think people follow her because they want to be like her. Maybe your followers are, oh, working at SAP, that sounds like a pretty good job and (laughs) flying around to uh, Portos uh, and giving uh, presentations and enjoying nice, is it, do you think that's part of it? I don't. And the reason I don't is I think the kind of lifestyle blogger, teenage neighbor you have, they're all about themselves. Whereas I don't know that I posted much about the fact that I was in Porto while I was there. Um, I might have posted one or two pictures of the stage or something like that. But most of what I was posting was content from either people who were talking or totally unrelated stuff about SAP or about some something that's happening in the news or something like that. So it would have been quite easy to miss the fact that I was in Porto while I was there. I I would we'll have to agree to disagree because I think people will kind of hear you. And yeah, maybe it's not as transparent as that, but it's like, would I want to have a beer with uh, Tom Tom Rafferty? Could I spend, you know, would I like him as a friend? It's sort of like he's my virtual friend. Uh, I don't have time to have a real friend because I've got a wife and uh, four kids or I'm uh, got my, you know, my boss is really riding me hard, but I can have this relationship with Tom, Tom Rafferty. I, I, I would, I think that's part of it, but we can, nice. we can, we can agree to disagree. Okay. So three songs. Did you have a chance to think about three songs that uh, oh, are meaningful to you? So three songs that are meaningful, uh, I guess. Uh, and uh, the first one would be Freebird. And that one is very uh, meaningful to me for quite a sad reason, to be honest. Huh. Um, it's a cool song. It's a beautiful song. But every time I hear it, I think of my friend, Dave White. Mm-hmm. Dave and I were in un- university together. And in our fourth year of university, a few weeks before our final exams, we happened to be out at a friend's party on the Saturday night, Mary O'Connor, 21st party, had a wonderful night. I had a great time chatting with him and everyone else there. The following night, he went out and committed suicide. Ah. Oh. And it was, you know, it's one of those things where you think back, we were at the party, we had a great time, we were chatting about the fun times we had together, growing up near each other, times we'd be playing together, that kind of thing. No hint at all. And why do I think of Freebird? Why do I think of him when I, when I hear that song? At his funeral, he requested that when his coffin was brought out of the church, that that song played through the speakers of the church. And it did. And everyone, everyone just broke down. So that's one song that, you know, is, is 
uh, tough for me. It's it's uh, every time I hear it, it brings back that that memory. So that, that's and where what was this? Where were you, where did you go to college? Uh, UCC University College Cork in Ireland. Oh. This was in ninety one. A beautiful song and really sad, uh, really sad memory. And isn't I'm assuming that you had no hint of what was about to happen when you not at all. Like I said, on the Saturday night, we had a great time. We were chatting away, like I said, reminiscing about times when we were kids growing up together, uh, playing in a local building site, getting chased by the guard who was supposed to be guarding the building site, that kind of thing. The, the usual kind of thing that we got up to as kids, you know. Uh, messing around and had a fun night, no hint whatsoever. So uh, your, your second song? Very different uh, reason, thankfully. It's uh, more upbeat. Uh, it's Take My Breath Away. And uh, I remember that. Again, I'm going back to university. This time to first year in university and that song played at a disco I was at when uh, I got my first kiss from my first girlfriend in university. I, I won't mention her name. I'll spare her blushes. <laughs> well, Rosemary, I, I won't mention her surname. Uh, and uh, it was, it was, uh, I, I had been in an all boys boarding school before going to, to university. So not a lot of chance to, to kiss girls. So this was my, my first kiss with a real live girl. It was, <laughs> so it where was, were you? Uh, we were in, uh, we were in a, a rugby, uh, club. Uh, it was, they had a big hall and it was one of these fundraising events, uh, and it was Cork Con uh, rugby grounds was where the the disco was, so it was a it was a fun night. The disco brings yeah. back lots of memories for <laughs> for many of us. That's where that was. Uh, do they still have discos at school? Uh, these these things. Uh, I don't know. They probably call them something else. Probably. Uh, and song number three, Bohemian Rhapsody. Just because, it's just such an awesome song. I mean, I don't have any great story behind it. Uh, I remember it in Wayne's World, obviously, but I, I, Queen were one of my favorite bands as a kid growing up. And uh, that song is just, I mean, there are so many great Queen songs, but I mean, that one is emblematic. It really is. And Freddie Mercury is just such an amazing singer. And uh, Just incredible. It, yeah. And, and just watching the, 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 the biopic with, um, oh, What's it? Rami, Rami, Rami Malik. Yeah. 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 That, was, that was so amazing. Brought it all back all over again. But I mean, I've been playing Queen songs at home, uh, you know, for decades. My kids are inculcated. They love Queen as well. You know, they, they haven't even rebelled. How could you rebel against Queen? You know, this such a great band. <laughs> just awesome. Uh, yeah. Live Aid, that uh, performance was just yeah. Amazing, wasn't it? I still, still, still remember everyone clustered around the televisions and uh, and Phil uh, Collins playing in both venues, playing in in London and then in uh, Philly. That was spectacular. Getting on a plane and flying across and playing the second one—that was amazing too. Yeah, awesome. 
Well, Tom, I've really enjoyed this uh, part of the, the the conversation. I feel like we could uh, we should settle down in the uh, nook of a really good pub and continue it. But uh, alas, we're not there, so uh, we'll have to end. But uh, Tom uh, Tom Rafferty, uh, uh, thanks so much for spending time with us. And thanks for inviting me, Steve. I really enjoyed it. So that was my conversation with Tom. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And uh, I really appreciate your sticking with us through uh, uh, these shows. It requires uh, some uh, concentration and attention. Not uh, not every, everyone has that. So appreciate your commitment and dedication. Hopefully you'll tune in next time and uh, listen to us again. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.